there. I want us to read together. It's printed in your bulletin, Philippians 1.6. I'm going to read it first, and then we're all going to read it together. If you want to look it up in your Bible or just use your bulletin this morning, it says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, let's read that all together. Philippians 1.6. Here we go. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this is kind of like singing. You've got to follow the leader here. Let's try that again. Get your best reading voice out. And let's read it out loud here. Here we go. Verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And Brother Stephen Smith, will you come and open us in prayer this morning? You would? And let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 30. First Samuel chapter 30, and just in case you're wondering, this is a passage uh, and, a, and a sermon that I have preached before, and I uh, don't often try to repeat messages, but just felt like this morning this was the message that the Lord would have me to bring. And so, uh, thank you. First Samuel chapter 30, and what I want to do is just set a little context here, and then we'll read our text and, and get into uh, the sermon this morning. Uh, in First Samuel, uh, we have basically the, the kingship of Saul and the life of David uh, as he is running and hiding from Saul. And finally, he finds refuge in the city of Ziklag, which is actually controlled by the Philistines. It was given to David as a home by the king of Gath. Now, you have to remember something. There was a, a very famous soldier from Gath. Does anybody remember his name? Uh, Goliath. And uh, he and David had had an encounter. It didn't turn out too good for Goliath. And yet David was uh, uh, a man of such, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but the king of Gath knew who David was and gave him this city called Ziklag to live in. And as David was there, the Philistines came and they went to war against Israel. And the king of Gath comes to David and he says, Surely you're going to go and fight with me against your own people. Well, he got David there in the, uh, uh, in the army of the Philistines. I want you to think about something. David had 600 men in the camp of the Philistine army. We don't know exactly what the count was, but it was well into the thousands, probably over 10,000 soldiers. And here was David with 600 people, 600 men. Now, do you think David was ever going to actually fight against Israel, his own people, and kill his own people? He had refused to even 
harm Saul who was trying to kill him. Well, as David was there, I am sure that there was some whispering among the 600, what in the world are we going to do? Uh, there was only one thing to do, and that was once the battle started, David and his men would try to join the side of Israel. The only problem was, when you show up at the battle on the wrong side, is anybody going to believe you? Uh, so David and his men were basically, uh, they had one of two options. Either God was going to do something very special or they were going to die. I mean, that was all there was to it. And God did do something very special. Uh, God worked in the hearts of the other generals there among the Philistines, and they went over to Achish, and they said, What are you doing with these Hebrews here? He said, They're not fighting with us. He says, But David has been loyal to me, and, and he has been with me since the beginning. And uh, they, and uh, anyway, they had an argument, and he told David and his men to leave. Now, the next morning, as David and his men are packing their stuff up, every one of them is just doing this. We were that close to dying. And now we're going to live. And as they were journeying back to Ziklag, their city that they lived in, we come to 1 Samuel chapter 30. And it says, And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, and Noam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And we're going to stop reading right there because we want to get the seriousness of the situation. They had just faced death, and God had delivered them. As they came back to Ziklag, it took them three days' journey to get back to uh, the city that they lived in. And as they got close and expecting to smell the smells of home and the cooking fires and all of that, they saw a different kind of smoke rising from the city. And probably some of the men began to break ranks and run to see what was going on. And as they approached the city and was able to look on Ziklag, they realized that there wasn't a living soul left in the city. It was everything was gone. Now I want you to think about something. Here's David. We had just escaped death, only to be faced with something ten times worse. And David is going to do some things here. And God is going to do some things here. 
And if you've been in our Sunday school, uh, it was probably about six, eight weeks ago, Brother Jason taught through this story. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at the pattern of David's life and the things that he did, uh, because, praise God, none of us will face what David faced here. I mean, we don't have roving bands of kidnappers and murderers running through the city and taking people hostage. Praise, praise the Lord, we're not dealing with those kinds of things. But I will tell you this, there are things that are happening in each one of our lives that if you're not careful, will overwhelm your soul and take you away. There are things that will dissuade you. The devil would love to use them to discourage you in serving the Lord or being obedient to God. Sometimes the difference between a temptation and a trial is what you do with it. And what I mean by that is God will send testing in your life. And if you fail that testing, you're going to sin. God didn't tempt you to sin. You chose not to trust in Him to bring you through the trial. And sometimes the devil will bring temptations in your life and you will be obedient to the Word of God and have the victory in that time. And God will use that victory as a trial to build you and make you stronger. You see, we believe in a salvation that is holy of God. When you get saved, there's nothing you can do To help God save you. He has to do all the work. He has done all the work. In fact, that's why the words are up there on the back wall of our auditorium. It is finished because all of the work necessary for salvation has been finished by Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross at the empty tomb. It is finished. Yet, we live in a time when we have a type of Christianity that is so passive, we become so dependent on God that we think all we're supposed to do is sit on our blessed assurance and wait for God to do things. And neither one of those is true. You cannot save yourself. God has to do it all. But He does expect you to work. He does expect you to do things. He is going to put things in your pathway that unless you depend upon Him, unless you follow the biblical outline here in your life, it is going to destroy you. But if you'll follow what the Bible says, it will build you. You see, the answers are here. And I love this sermon. I developed it eight or nine years ago. And every once in a while, I'll just go read it to myself because I need to be encouraged. And need to be reminded of the things I'm supposed to do. And as I was praying about what to preach this morning, and I hope and pray that this will be a blessing to someone's heart that is here. 
And so as we start through this passage, we find David and his mighty men. Now, you're going to remember these are the mighty men. These are the guys, one of these guys went into battle by himself against 800 men, and he was the only one left. Now, stop and think about that. That's almost a battalion, one man against a battalion. And the whole battalion dies, and he's left. I'll I'll tell you, that's nearly unparalleled in the history of warfare. And the Bible does not embellish. You see, in those days, you could not kill someone from afar. You had to get close enough, and by the time you got close enough, uh, you were too close. He won the battle. And these were David's mighty men, but they're sitting here weeping until they had no power to weep. Now, we have this thing in our society, men don't cry. Yes, they do. There's nothing unmanly about emotions in There'd be something wrong with you that if you did not have emotion when your whole family was taken captive to be sold into slavery. Uh, The picture was not a pretty one. And I will not detail that this morning because of time and because we just don't need to go there. But we're going to start reading here in verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. Now, do you get where this is? Here's David. If you remember back in chapter 22, everyone that was discouraged and distressed and in debt came down and Uh, And they began to form this group of mighty men that followed David. And they now numbered about 600 men with their families. And so you're talking a fairly large group of people, probably close to 2,000 people here, following David. And now they're reduced to 600. The only ones that are left are the men. Now, when something really bad happens, what's the first thing that we do? We want to blame somebody. We want to find out who's responsible. And that wasn't too hard to figure out who had led them to Ziklag. David did. Who had taken refuge in the land of the Philistines? David had. And they said, if we'd only gotten rid of David a little earlier, things would have been better for us. Now, here's David, and he's listening to this. They're not going, I think we ought to stone David. No, they're going, he's the one that's at fault, let's get him. Now, how would you like to be David right now? But here's what David did. Did you read that last phrase ahead of me? But David encouraged himself in the Lord 
his God. Now, how did David do that? I want to challenge you. I'm going to take a whole lot longer to preach about this than the events transpired because they went very quickly. David did not have a lot of time to encourage himself in the Lord. But he did, my friend. That was the first thing. Now, how do you encourage yourself in the Lord? Well, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. The first thing you can do is remember the promises of God. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I want you to look at verse 13. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of God came on David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Now here's what happened. God told Samuel, I've rejected Saul. By the way, Saul had been rejected for many years at this point. Saul was only two years into his kingship when God said, I've rejected him. And, and he comes to Samuel in chapter 16 says, how long are you going to weep? And if you want to do the math, uh, Saul reigned 40 years. David was uh, 30 years old when he began to reign in Hebron. So David was not even born for another eight years after God rejected Saul as being the king. And it would be another at least 13 or 16 years before we get here to chapter 16, depending on how old David was, when when he killed Goliath, most people believe that he was somewhere between uh, somewhere around 16 years old. So now, now we got 24 years that Samuel had been mourning for Saul. And God told Samuel, you're going to anoint the next king. And I'll tell you what, it was an amazing story. And I wish you had time to read the whole thing. But Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he calls Jesse and he said, I want your sons to pass before me. And he looks at the first one and Big, strapping, strong, good-looking man. And Samuel says, wow, he looks just like Saul. That must be the one that God wants. God said, no, I'm looking on the heart. And it was Jesse's son, David, who was the youngest, who was so unimportant as far as the family was concerned. He was out keeping the sheep when the family had been called by Samuel to participate in the sacrifice. And Samuel says... We're not sitting down until he gets here. And they brought him, and he was just a little boy, and just one of those uh, beautiful, our, our Bible uses the word ready, ruddy. It means red cheek with life in him. And, and he's just one of those beautiful little boys. And Samuel got his brothers. It says he anointed them in the midst of his brethren. He didn't want anybody to know what was going on. So he got all those big strapping brothers to get in a circle facing out. And on the inside was Samuel and David. And Samuel reaches into that robe that he wore and he pours out a horn of a ram filled with oil. And he 
begins to ply that and break that until the oil begins to drip out and he pours it on David's head. They do the sacrifice and walk away. David knew the promise that he would be the king. And he says, even though I'm staring death in the face for the second time in three days, God, you promised me that I will be king. I haven't got there yet, so you're going to give me life. You know what Jesus said? He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If you will believe in Jesus as your Savior, you don't have to worry about Jesus. He will always be there. And in all these years, He has never, ever lost a soul. You say, well, I know people that went to church and now they don't go to church and they they say they lost their salvation. I'll tell you what, you can't lose salvation, God's salvation. Because you didn't do it, He did. If you have something you lost, you didn't have what this Bible offers. And the Bible says there's going to be a whole lot of deceived people when they stand before God that are crying out, Lord, Lord, didn't we even prophesy in thy name? I was a preacher. Certainly I'm saved. And God says, no. The only way you get saved is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Then he's the one that does the saving. You can't lose that. David had the promise of God that he would be king. The Spirit of the Lord had come upon him. David had the knowledge that even though on two different occasions he was put in a situation where he could have killed Saul and actually stepped into being the king and no one would have been able to stop him. He said, I'm going to honor God's word and I'm going to honor God's anointed because God has given him life for some reason I'm not going to step into that which I don't belong. You know, a lot of times we as Christians take responsibility and authority in our lives that belongs to God and we wonder why we get in trouble. And we wonder why God doesn't answer our prayers. I'll tell you, when the crisis came, David was able to encourage himself in the Lord because he had the promises of God and because he had kept those promises and stayed within the boundaries of God's authority. And therefore, he had a knowledge that no matter what was going on, that God was still working in this problem. I'll tell you, when you have nothing else to encourage you, that's the only thing that will. That's why it's so vital to obey God today. Amen? But David could also encourage himself in the Lord because he had seen a partial fulfillment of all those promises. Even though those mighty men had yet to become the mighty men of valor that we would read about They were becoming those men. And who was their leader? David was. And even though those men were now talking about stoning David, David wasn't looking at that. He was saying, 
I remember when that one came to our group. What a mess he was. What a work God has done in his life to make him the man and the leader of his family that he's supposed to be. David was looking at what God had done in the lives of those very men. I'm sure he remembered with tears the work that Abigail had done in preventing David from sinning against God and avenging himself because of the wickedness of Nabal, the Carmelite, and how the God himself showed up and struck Nabal and that he died just a few days after he had affronted David and his men. I'll tell you, he was remembering those things and and God was protecting David all along and kept David from Saul's hand. And yet, David encouraged himself because he had seen God's power. How do you think a 16-year-old boy killed a 9-foot-6 giant? Well, I mean, David was good with that sling, yes. But David understood that it was the power of God that killed the giant. That it was the power of God that manipulated and allowed David to fight the Philistines on so many occasions and come back forth victorious. It was God that had worked where David was trapped on top of the mountain and and the armies of Saul had surrounded him to take him. And David knew that he had stumbled and, and had made a mistake. And no sooner did Saul get ready to spring the trap then the messenger comes and says, the Philistines have invaded the land. You can't, you can't be playing around down here what you're doing. We've got the problems. And, and David understood. You see, God had told him to go attack the Philistines at Keilah, and that's what got the Philistines upset. And it was God using the Philistines to protect David from Saul. Why? Because David was obedient. You see, David was taking this moment, if you can just picture these men just sitting there with mud on their faces because of their tears and and sitting in the dirt and and the ashes and and crying and wailing. And and now they're starting to uh, get angry and pick up stones and walk toward David And David in his mind is going, No, God promised that he would make me king. I was obedient and I didn't step over the boundaries of God's authority when I had a chance to kill Saul. I've watched God take this bunch of rabble-rousing losers and turn them into an effective fighting unit. God has kept me from sin. God defeated Goliath. We fought the Philistines. Now, I just want to read a few verses. In 2 Samuel, this is David's testimony as he was dying. I just want to read a few verses. He, He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. Verse 44, Thou hast also hast delivered me from the strivings of my people. Thou hast kept me to be the head of the heathen, a people whom I knew not shall serve me. And that bringeth me forth from mine enemies, 
Thou also hast lifted me up on high above them that rose up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. David encouraged himself in the Lord. And I want to tell you, he only had a few moments to do that. But that's step number one. What we're going to see in in. Uh, verses 7 and 8, And David said to Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And, and Abathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord. Now here's David sitting in the midst of these men who are talking about stoning him. Who had, He himself has wept until he had no more power to weep. And he is Calling to Abathar, he says, bring the ephod. Now, the ephod was the garment that the uh, priest wore. And, and uh, part of that garment was two items uh, called the Urim and the Thummim. And these were things that only the priest could use. They were kept in the breastplate of the high priest's robe. And David inquired through Abathar of God. Now, I want you to look at the questions he asked. Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? Now, when we get into a time of distress, we often throw up our hands and say, What am I going to do? You know, most of the time we know what to do. Isn't that true? Most of the time, it's not, you know, David didn't have to think hard. He had one of two options. Either God was going to let me go get these guys and bring our people back, or he's not. He said, God, do I have your permission to go after these guys? Are you going to help us catch these people who have done this thing? Now look at God's answer. Pursue. For thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail, recover all. David inquired of the Lord. He didn't ask the Lord why. He asked the Lord what. And he knew that there were only so many what's that he could ask for. He wasn't saying, now God, I'm going to sit here and wait until you bring everybody back. He said, do we get our arms on and do we follow these people? And God said, pursue. And without fail, you're going to recover all. There was a promise that God gave. Somebody, every time I read through a passage like this, I, I think of the person sitting there and they're just going, well, God doesn't talk to me like that. Well, let me, let me tell you something. God has spoken to you like that. The problem is we don't pay attention to what's already been written down. David did not procrastinate. He did not wait for conditions to improve. If David had waited, uh, the only thing he would have been able to attend was his own funeral. Things were going very bad, very quick. You know, we have this 
idea that somehow I, I need to get in touch with myself and just... Uh, if you need to get in touch that bad, just slap yourself across the face good and hard and you'll know that it's connected. And then you can go forward. Amen? This whole idea of, uh, of getting in touch with myself and, and, and putting myself together and all of this, that, that's humanistic philosophy. The answer is not in you. The answer is in this book. Get in touch with God and He'll take care of what's going on in you. You know what? David had already just come out of a life-threatening situation. And he didn't say, you know, dear God, I've been through so much just with the Philistine army. Will you give me a moment to, to just put things in order in my own emotional being? He didn't have time. There was no time for all of this. God said, go. David went. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I I want us to go through some of the thought process here. You see, David didn't wait. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't put it off. He didn't say, give me a moment here. They tell the story of one of the British princes who was actually on a tour in, in Africa. And they were... Uh, being chased by hostile tribes and all his life he had been in the habit of saying, just give me five minutes. And that five minutes cost him his life and the life of every man that was in his uh, uh, bodyguard unit because they delayed enough time to let the enemy catch up to him. Delay is not going to help. But David didn't pretend. You know, we live in a world of virtual reality. They're they're now talking about uh, being able to put computer chips in your eye where you can actually process imagery from satellites and, and see with your eye things that are so far distant. And I mean, it's... You say, that's science fiction. Well, uh, actually, they're working on it right now. And you don't, they already have, what is that called? Google Glass, where you put on your glasses and you can watch movies and see TV screens and, and all of these things. We live in a world of pretend, make believe. You can be such a loser in this life. But when you're Captain Jimmy Starship in your little bunker, I mean, you are the ruler of the universe. And you get on uh, the internet with other people and you fight and play your little games. And hey, let me tell you, that's not real. They shoot movies in 3D. So when the guy gets his and everything goes everywhere, you can feel like it's uh, you're, you're right there. In fact, they've made movies where some of our soldiers have had relapses in post-traumatic stress from watching the movie and reliving the events that are there. Somebody says, but, but I like the realism. I don't. I praise God for every person that has been willing to serve in the defense of this country. And I also praise God that I've never had to. 
because they went for me. We need to encourage them and pray for them. But you're not going to help them by trying to live their experiences. You see, David didn't just sit and said, okay, now I've got to empty my mind. Get in touch with the good vibes in the universe. David didn't use uh, to, uh, his past to paste a pretend set of circumstances to make things better than they seem. You know, if you have a good work with a pen, you could make an F on your report card look like a B. But that's only pretend, my friend. Because if there's an F there, that means you didn't get the information. And there'll come a test in life where you're going to need it. David did not defer his leadership and say, well, you guys agreed with me. Listen, I'm the leader, but, but you willingly followed me. It's your fault too. How long do you think David had been alive if he had tried that? You see, David encouraged himself at the Lord, and then he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He asked the question needed to be asked. Uh, and David didn't take time. To say, okay, now this is what God has said. What do you guys think about it? He didn't take time to ponder. He didn't give a big speech. I mean, I don't know where we get this, but we think somehow talking about something is going to make a difference. I'm going to give a rallying speech and all the guys are going to rally behind me. And follow. If David had tried to give a big speech, he'd been dead. David did not even take time to trust to his own understanding of things. He wasn't thinking. How could you think? How could you sit there and ponder all these things and put this when you just finished weeping until you had no more power to weep and your men are talking about stoning you? He encourages himself in the Lord. He says, bring me the ephod. He says, do we pursue? God said, pursue. And we get to the last part of this thing. David endured. Look at verse 9. It says, so David went. He and the 600 men that were with him and came to the brook Bezor. And we're going to stop right there. David pursued. There was no time for rest and refreshment. There was no time for thinking about things. You see, when you get into a crisis of life, here's what you're going to do. You're going to do what you've trained yourself to do. You're going to do how you have been prepared to deal with crisis. You know what most people do when they get into a crisis? You say, why did you cover your face? Well, I had never seen a wreck that bad before, and I wasn't going to watch this one, even though you were involved. That's what most people do. They just throw up their hands and scream. David said, I'm going to encourage myself in the Lord. I'm going to inquire at the Lord. Then I'm going to obey Him. I'm going to keep obeying Him. Until I'm done obeying them. Ah, that's why I use the word endure. 
because it wasn't a part-time thing. This was a full-time thing. You've got to realize they'd been marching three days from the camp of the Philistines. They get to Ziklag. They weep until they have no more power to weep. And as the men are just sitting there weeping, David's over there buckling on his sword and strapping on his armor and putting his helmet on, and the guys are going... I, and David says, I inquired at the Lord, and he said, pursue. Now get ready, and let's go. No time to think. Time to do. David had prepared himself to inquire at the Lord, to obey the Lord. And so David went, and, and they get to the brook Bezor here, and 200 of David's 600 men are so tired and so exhausted that they cannot cross the brook Bezor. You know what David does? He leaves them. He says, guys, I'm not slowing down to wait for you to get better. Uh, I know you need rest. I know you can't physically go any further. And so you stay here. Nothing's going to happen to you guys. I'm going. We're not slowing down. But what's the next thing that happened? They found this Egyptian guy laying in the field. And they stop. And they give him water. They said they had to force him to drink water. And then they gave him food to eat. You ever tried to feed somebody that's half dead? I mean, I used to work in a nursing home. And part one of my jobs was feeding the people who could no longer eat on their own. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, you have to be utterly patient. The food's all pureed in a, in a broth-like thing, and you pull it up into a big syringe, and you just give them a little squirt at a time so that they can swallow it and, and, and take nourishment. It takes a long time. This guy had been laying in the field for three days. He was sick and his master abandoned him. And David and his men stopped and took care of him. Now, why did they leave the 200 at the brook and just keep on going? And yet they all stopped to take care of this guy. Well, the only thing that would do any good for the 200 that was there was rest. That was the only thing that would solve their problem. Well, David wasn't going to wait for them to rest. But this guy was dying. And if they didn't take time to give him some food and some nourishment, he was going to die. And so they did. And how many of you know what he was? He was the key to the whole situation. See, you never do wrong by doing right. But you never do right by waiting for other people to catch up to you. When God's given you something to do, you've got to do it. You can't stop and wait for other people to catch up. If what they need is rest... Now, we're going to find out that the, God took care of these 200 guys and He used David to do it. But David kept going. And he prosecuted the matter completely. He had been traveling all night. 
And at the break of day, some 36 hours after he left Ziklag, he finds the Amalekites. And he doesn't say, now guys, we've been up 36 hours. We're never going to fight this battle unless we get a little rest. He said, let's go. You'll be surprised at what the human body can endure if you know that you must endure it. People give up way too easy. We, we take far too good care of ourselves and far too little care of what the words of this book say. And they didn't stop fighting until there was nobody left to fight. And by the way, David wasn't over there going through the hostages and things looking for his wife and his children. He was fighting until the battle was done. You see, that's what David did. And God prospered him through this whole thing. Not only did he recover all, he recovered much besides. Not only did he recover all for the men, the 400 that went with him, when they got back to the brook Bezor with the whole group, some of those soldiers, the same ones that talked about Stone and David, by the way, they said, give them their wives and their children and let them get out of here. They weren't worthy of the rest of us. And David said, "Uh uh-uh. Those that stay by the stuff and those that go battle part evenly. said, they had as much of the part of this battle as you did even though they weren't able to go. They were still part of the army. Now, what do you think that did for those 200 guys? Number one, they said, man, I don't deserve treatment like this. But don't you think they said, I'm never fainting by the brook again. I'm never going to stop again because my king believed in me even when I refused to believe in hope. And let me tell you something. When God works, He works all the way around. He takes care of everybody. Now these guys that had followed David... You know what? They weren't turning back and none of them ever did. Because they saw God work in David's life even though they had no idea what was going on. I want to challenge us today. David did three things. He inquired at the Lord. I mean, he encouraged himself in the Lord, he inquired at the Lord, and he obeyed or he endured. He kept obeying the Lord until there was nothing left to do. We do not know what the future holds. But I will tell you this. You need to understand that there are promises in this book that belong to every person that's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And God has never, ever broken His Word. The problem is not God. So where is the problem? Right here. 
if you really don't know what to do, God will tell you. In fact, he's already told you in his word. Sometimes it takes a little effort to find it. But God does expect you to do things. What David and his men did was an extraordinary feat under any set of circumstances, let alone starting this whole thing totally worn out and frazzled with with having faced death in the Philistine army camp. That's how they started. And yet God worked through this whole situation in taking care of a half-dead Egyptian to restore everything that they had and more beside. And all of David's men had faith in God and in David as their leader. Now, we need to understand some things. God's going to put things in our lives. You've got to encourage yourself in the Lord. You've got to find out what the Bible says about it. And then God does expect you to do some things. And it may be so far beyond your understanding of things that you say, it's not possible to even begin to do those things. Wrong. If God says to do it, he'll do it. God is still in the miracle working business. And most of the time, God does not do miracles is because we're in the way. God is not going to bless Visa and MasterCard. Now, I'm not saying they're sinful in and of themselves, but if you have financial needs and you go borrow the money on your own, don't expect God to pay the bills. If you can work it out, God's not going to. And what we need is we need God to work in our hearts and lives. And all God's people say, Heavenly Father, we come before you and we look at the life of David this morning. And Lord, we ask that in a very small way that you would help us to transfer to ourselves the pattern of his behavior. That we would inquire of the Lord, that we would encourage ourselves in the Lord, inquire of him, and then just simply endure, just keep being obedient till there's nothing left to do. We ask you to work in hearts and lives today. That our worship would not be limited to a few hours on Sunday morning. But it would be lived each day of this coming week. Lord, we pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. The hymn of invitation.